In this week's podcast, we're talking about the future of Europe. It's a topic that's preoccupied many a festival conversation in recent years. It's a subject that also sits at the heart of a new festival project that comes to fruition next month in Rijeka, Croatia. Hey Festival Europa 28 brings together 28 women writers, journalists, artists, scientists and entrepreneurs from across the continent to put forward their ideas on how we might meet the challenges ahead. It was a project formed before the UK's Brexit vote, though now has taken on a new significance. Our Europa 28 anthology was released in May and all 28 contributors will be joining us live and online the 6th to the 9th of October in a one-off free festival that will explore these ideas more deeply. Coming up, we'll offer a flavour of what's to come and hear from four of the people taking part. British social activist and author Hilary Cotton, Scotland-based Bulgarian-born writer Kapka Kasabova, Danish novelist and former UN officer Jana Teller, and French novelist Leila Slamani, along with Turkish writer and campaigner Alif Shafak. But first, a short introduction to the project from editor and translator Sophie Hughes. Why must we rethink Europe's future? The relation between how Europe is seen and how it is experienced is more tenuous than ever. Hay Festival Europa 28 is a space beyond Europe's traditional centres of power in which 28 women writers, journalists, artists, scientists and entrepreneurs from across the continent share their visions for the future of Europe. Sophie spoke with three of the project's contributors at Hay Festival Wales last year, Hilary Cotton, Kapka Kasabova and Jana Teller. What I do believe also is successful, but again people are not quite aware that is, is that we, have, we all have our differences in each corner of Europe, even within each country, there are a lot of differences, across borders there are differences, and nobody has tried to make us one, but to, you know, to make us cooperate with all our differences. Um, and actually, Europe is a tremendously successful project, but that narrative isn't sold, and that's our fault. Okay. I have another question. I, m- I may just ask it to you now, actually, while we're, while we're still here. In your text for the anthology, which um, is fantastic, it's about Jana's dream for Europe, and she imagines Europe as a house. And in that house, there's um, various different areas. And, w- and one of the components of this house is that it's a house of variation. But my question, and it's a beautiful, hopeful vision, but my question would be, we all know what happens when you get reach an impasse, even uh, you know, having an argument with your mother over the phone. Who, how, who has to back down? Who, how do attitudes change in order for us to stop fighting with um, Europe as, as nations? Where do you see it um, actually going? Well, I think in a way what is easy is that um, we don't live so close that we have to be the same. We can live in lots of different ways in our different areas and even in today where more cultures are mixed than before, you, you can still have many different ways of living in the same areas. It's, but what we have to understand always is that the freedom of one person, I mean, it's a basic human rights question, the freedom of one person only extends onto the point where it starts to infringe on the yeah. freedom of another. And, but if that's a basic, of how you then uh, operate and you know, how you adopt your laws, things can work out rather easily. Mm. I mean, yes, there are um, 
long negotiations for anything we tried to do in Europe. But, but still, I mean, we have managed for 70 years with 28 countries. And, you know, I still hope that uh, England will change its mind and stay in Europe somehow. But that's my personal wish because I love this country. You're probably um, alone here, yeah. So, <laughs> but, um, but that, I mean, if you think even the discussion there is yeah, in Parliament here in London and so how much fighting there is, mm. And then still how much is managed to be done between 28 countries in Europe. It's a tremendous success in itself mm. that anything gets done. <laughs> <laughs> Kapka, can we move on to you and, and just return to the same question about the successes of Europe? Um, a lot of your recent work has focused on, on borders um, and you have really tried to um, Rest from your uh, rest from your personal journeys to these borderlands. Uh, a sense of um, what is what is left to heal still from the people that you meet from the from the land itself. Um, can you tell us perhaps about whether or not there's any positive side to borders as well? I mean, it's not a question you probably get asked that often, but yeah. Or, or, or you know, I or talk to us about the the, the the borders within Europe or more generally. Whether you whether you think that having um, an area with free-flowing access for its citizens has made a big difference to the way people um, act and, and associate with each other? I'll just briefly touch on this, yeah. <laughs> on these massive questions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> these are such, uh, the, I mean, I guess the border is, um, well, I've written a book called Border um, because there's so much to say about borders not in the way of opinion, because I'm not a, an opinion writer, but in the way of human stories, mm. um, which is what my book tries to, um, tries to do, is to tell the story of a particular border, which I've called the last border of Europe. Um, I wanted to, just to respond to, um, to, to what uh, Jana was saying, uh, which reminded me yesterday I went to a session called Aftermath um, here at the festival, and uh, someone said, one of the panelists said, you know, by blaming the EU, we, whether that's the English or the, or the British, you know, in the whole process of Brexit or other discontented with the EU European nations are outsourcing. What we're doing is we're outsourcing our internal problems. I would call that projection in psychological terms. <laughs> you know, that, that's called projecting um, when you blame someone else or an external uh, sort of force or entity mm. for what is really uh, an mm. internal problem. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you um, more on that. But I really wanted to, uh, well, borders. <laughs> um, well, I'm interested in how borders work and how borders fail, because I think it's the destiny of all borders and all fences um, to fail mm. eventually. Mm. Um, so I guess in my book, Border, I, I traced the story of a failure in, in many ways. Um, through the extraordinary voices of the people of the border mm. um, who are living with the aftermath of that particular border, which happened to be a stretch of the Iron Curtain, the easternmost stretch of the Iron Curtain. But there are also other borders, um, such as uh, those in our heads. So I'm very interested in um, how, how something is present in the collective mm. sort of consciousness before it materializes on the ground. Mm. And I think the border is a good example. And also what is left of it once it fails, once it is, in the case of this border, the Iron Curtain, literally sold for scrap, yeah. you know, on the heap of history. 
um, what happens then? What is, what is the legacy um, of that? Um, I mean, the answer is always ambiguous. You know, mm. the borders are ambiguous places. Um, but they're not benign places, as, as they we are have come benign to places. believe a little bit, I think, as British citizens, you know, a big generalisation. But, you know, we, we whiz through borders without thinking twice about them. This is one of the great privileges that we have. Indeed. Have I think, you know, nations which, and I, w I very much want to touch on this um, idea of that there are many Europes, um, I think, depending on where in Europe you stand, geopolitically and culturally, Europe has a different kind of sound and a different, it comes with different baggage. And I thought I would, I would give you two, um, two um, snippets of um, two voices from different points in time. Um, a day will come when all, all nations on our continent will form a European brotherhood. And presumably sisterhood, but it was of the time. When we shall see the United States of America and the United States of Europe face to face, reaching out for each other across the seas. These are the words of French writer and intellectual Victor Hugo. And he spoke them in 1849 at the International Peace Congress in Paris. So the founding fathers of, of this sort of European project go a long way back. You know, this dream, mm -hmm. this longing, you know, for, for, for a unity, you know, whatever shape it takes, um, I think has, a, has an interesting history. Mm. Um, and I also want to read you um, something else. When they arrived, I recognized one who was a local boy. He was in the same class as my son at school. I was with my neighbor and her 14-year-old boy in my kitchen then. She grabbed him to protect him. They hit me with a gun, so I lay on the floor and watched how they pulled them apart and forced the gun into my neighbor's hand and made her stick the barrel of the gun down her son's throat. I screamed. When I came to, I was lying in a small pool of my own blood. My flat had been ransacked and, and completely destroyed. I don't know what happened to my neighbor. This is um, a survivor of the war in the former Yugoslavia, 1992. So <laughs> I think when we talk about 70 years of peace, that's largely true. And we must remember that you know, the EU as a, as a concept was built on the ashes of apocalypse, which is what, <laughs> what World War II was. Mm. It was built on the ashes mm. of that apocalypse, mm. which we all shared. And I think we all carry the legacy of that. And that's really important to remember. Mm. We are all inheritors of that legacy. And we, when we also talk about peace, we must remember this, this extract was from a, a wonderful book by Misha Glenny called The Fall of Yugoslavia, um, which he covered um, firsthand. It's a very hard-hitting book. So we must, when we talk about peace in Europe, we mustn't forget the Balkans. My, I'll have to say, my book, Europe, what it all is lacking, takes place exactly in that war in Bosnia. So you're totally right on mm. this. <laughs> so, um, relative um, peace. The relative peace of the last. Or in, you know, in the European Union, that said that, that if we had had the states of the Balkans as members of Europe, I don't think there would have been a war. I mean, that's part but of how, how you How can we separate talking about the EU oh. and talking about Europe? And what that's a technical detail mm. that those states were not part of the EU. Where was the EU, you know, um, when Sarajevo was besieged and shelled for almost four years and hundreds of thousands were killed and tortured oh, yeah. and 20,000 women were raped? 
what was Europe or the EU, whichever we prefer, mm. doing then? You know, the Europe in the 1990s. was Kapka, and that was exactly the problem that we didn't have one foreign policy because the English sided mainly with the Serbs, and the Germans had so many Croats immigrants, and anyway, felt closer from old alliances with the Croats, and nobody in Europe were ready to take the. Uh, case of the Bosnian Muslims, who were the ones who were really being wiped out. And so Europe was so split on the issue, and it was not popular at the time anyway to send soldiers in anywhere that we had to leave it to the Americans, who only then late in the game came in and did anything. But it's an absolute shame. It's a shame of my yeah, generations of Europeans. Europe's failure. But it's a failure because we had not come far enough in having a united foreign policy. So everybody still used old alliances from before the European Union, you know, was there. We are further now, because of that failure, we are further now towards one foreign policy. But then you get resistance towards it because people don't understand exactly that that's the purpose of it. The purpose is not to say that nobody can have their own ideas about life in their countries, mm. but it's that we can intervene as Europe and not depend upon the US or China or India, you know. Today. Let's hope we yeah. never get tested like this again. Well, that, you know, leads, me to, that leads me to, a, to, to another question. Hilary, I'm going to come to you next to, to ask you about the, the um, not the failures, but you know, what we see as Europe having, having done for us and continuing to do for us. But um, Kapka, I've, I've read a, a line of your work which is, um, war begins with division. Who has a future? Those who don't get caught up in war again. So in a way, what Jana is saying is, is if we learn from our past differences, from our mistakes, then we can lead towards the future of Europe that could work, that could prevent this from happening. Do you see that at least as a possibility? Um, it is always a possibility. Yeah. Um, I think there is um, unlimited potential for to do things differently. <laughs> and how do we keep um, that message of rem remembering the past, remembering past wars, remembering what's gone wrong within a collective consciousness? I suppose, well, <laughs> it's, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I guess I'm, my work is dedicated to keeping, keeping that memory, but yes, also keeping yeah. the future open. And it's about as much the living as the dead. Um, and I don't think, and we're connected, the living and the dead are always in conversation. And I guess the only way to do things differently is to be perhaps just work on our own awareness of it, we're talking about Europe here and I think parts of Europe are not necessarily aware of other parts of Europe um, oh, absolutely. so the Balkans are a good example we had this yesterday um, Kapka had a discussion with Stig Abel that you'll be able to listen to and I really recommend that you do on the BBC and, um, and that was precisely one of the conversations that, that you had is that we there are so many things of which we're ignorant about Europe, even as part of Europe, which is why this idea of it being a house and a family does feel as an ideal, like... But a house with many different rooms, I say. We all know <laughs> things can happen in one room yeah. in a house <laughs> that other parts of the house does know about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or oh. borders can come oh, we'll handy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> can close the door for a moment, can be a good thing. It's not just the, you know, you said, Captain, there's many Europes, but there's also many, many Britons, Britons, and that's yeah. one of the challenges we're facing exactly. now. Yeah. We haven't recognised that and sought to understand it amongst ourselves. Mm. But anyway, sorry. Just no, I, w I want to move on to you, Hilary, and talk 
to talk a little bit well about welfare within Britain and mm. also within Europe because your book, Hillary's new book, um, or, or new paperback of a book that came out last year, is called Radical Help and it's about the social revolution. It's about radically changing our, um, our welfare system for a radically changed society, um, which is one that is very applicable across Europe and proof is, is that you are being translated sort of by the month another country wants to read your book which initially you thought well this is a book about Britain but of course it's not. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? A little bit about the idea? Uh, the idea? Yes, I mean I think, I mean Radical Help is a book about how I think we should reform the British welfare state and the argument in the book is that because our society and our economy has changed so much these once brilliant systems that we had designed at the end of the Second World War are not so brilliant now. So, for instance, we have a health service designed around curing uh, contagious disease, but 70% of the sort of expense in the health system is actually on people with chronic conditions, mm -hmm. and we know that we can't be well taken care of in those industrial systems. And I look at work, and I look at family, and so on, and think about how could we go back to that original post-war vision and reinvent it for our time. So the book is a book of stories of people that I've worked with all across Britain building new models of what a welfare state could be like, which you know tens of thousands of people have used. And I think for me, I mean, I'm a sort of ambivalent, you know, I'm a European, I grew up in Spain. It's a, an amazing thing to be part of this community where you can have an identity as, you know, I live in Peckham, my family are from this area here, very close to Hay, I'm also European. Um, but I definitely feel that the European community is part of this huge flourishing that we had at the end of the Second World War. You know, we had the strengthening of the trades union movement, we had welfare states all across Europe, we had the United Nations and we had the seeds of what was a very ancient idea, as Kapka was saying, but grew into the European community, which was very, very important. But I do think we see now that those same institutions are very short of answers and need a profound reinvention. So I don't, you know, Jana was saying about how we're protected, and I agree, you look at, you know, how the... Um, the Commission has taken on big data. We think about how those of us on the left in this country have always tried to kind of ally with Europe because they protected the basic rights of workers across Europe, which through many governments we would have lost, and that's one of the kind of terrors, I think, of what might happen here with Brexit. But at the same time, I think, in the communities I work in, it's really obvious that Europe has no answers, just as national governments have had no answers. So I think one of the things I talk about in the book that is incredible, I think, is that 40% of British families today in work receive welfare benefits because they're paid so little they can't afford to survive. Mm. And if we think about what has Europe done, well, Europe has had the same idea, hasn't it? It's given grants to those areas in our country and other countries that can't survive. And of course, nobody wants to live on handouts. People mm. want belonging, they want good economies, they this want, you know... This is all part of your approach, which is called the capability approach. Exactly. Which in a nutshell, I mean, I can explain it in a nutshell, you can go into whatever aspect of it you want, is the idea that rather than um, handouts, what you need to do is um, encourage and inspire people to find their dream, to, uh, to, to find what they're good at, to find what they would like to be good at, to harness it, and then to work with them on a process of building a career rather than just getting that initial first job. Is that Well, that would be a good example in work, yeah. yes. I mean, my, my sort of broad shift is that we've got a, a post-war system which manages us, meets our needs, which is really important, manages us. But what we really need are kind of now 21st century systems uh, that support us to grow the capabilities we need to thrive in this century. So we need 
the ability to work, to learn, to have good health. We need the ability to connect, which is why Europe is such an important idea, because you can't think of a single 21st century problem that doesn't need really kind of broad international connection. But then we need to reimagine Europe, because it's clear that what we've got is not going to kind of sort those problems out for And us what either. struck me um, as interesting about the book is that um, you talk about relationships and connecting, and what would have been you know, 30 years ago, two words that went together. It now seems that actually our con connection through the internet, through the technological revolution, is actually in some way hindering our relationships at a local level. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about how those two things connect? Because part of what you want to do is revolutionize by harnessing and tapping into the possibilities that technolo technology yeah. can afford us in order to build relationships, which is something that maybe perhaps we're failing to do, and you talk about it a little bit, Yana, as well, about maybe in a future Europe we wouldn't all be at our laptops all day long. Oh, that's yeah, beautiful. well, yeah. But I mean, I have very much, as, as human beings, our... I mean, what is the purpose of being alive? Um, and where do we feel most alive? We feel alive when we use our senses. You know, when we either hear something, we see something, we um, feel something, we smell, we taste, uh, we really think something ourselves. We don't feel alive um, through the eyes of the other, even though that has become today's success criteria. Get as many eyes on you or on your screen, then you're so-called success. But it's a passive thing. Others see you, but you are not allowed. You're not the one doing the seeing, mm -hmm. the doing the... So, and that's, I think, what the screen has taken away. All these technolo uh, technologies, they reduce our intake or our use of our own senses, our own being alive. Um, it's a great tool for yeah, um, connecting with people who are far away, but it takes us away from the present moment, and the present is where we are again, feeling alive. But, but if Hillary's, I can come back to this, yeah. because I, I mean, oh. in my book, I've got a big story about technology, which is that, you know, we are definitely undergoing this revolution. And it's changing our economy, it's changing our societies, our families, our bodies, our minds. And that's the big reason why we need to kind of rethink our social systems. But at the micro level, just as you're saying, mm. Sophie, it's also having an impact. So we know that loneliness, for instance, mm. is the biggest killer that we feel atomized. We know it's having a kind of profound effect on adolescent mental health and so on. So, as you say, the, the, the experiments and the things we design with communities are trying to kind of grapple with that. So, on the one hand, you know, one of the things we have is a, uh, something called Circle, which is a way of bringing together communities of older people mm. to support each other and provide good company rather than somebody sending around somebody you don't really like to keep you company, but to kind of grow good company and to provide on-demand support. Um, we have kind of new ways of finding work, uh, which asks people, as you said, what they dream of. But then we connect people who are in and out of work in a real place, like in a pub, in a cafe. Because if, if, if you ask me to connect somebody and help them, if I meet them, there's that real connection and I'll follow them through mm -hmm. and I'll support them. Whereas if it's just an email online, I'm not likely to kind of respond. But I think the really important thing about the work is that although all the experiments are about finding new ways to connect together in exactly the way you're saying and build those real relationships, at the same time, we can use technology at the sort of back end to make those systems affordable now. So, you know, we can run circles of, you know, 2,000 people with four people and a piece of technology that knows that, you know, Capco needs a lift to the hospital and, and Yana can give her a lift. Mm -hmm. So we can completely transform the financial models, but doing that in a way that then brings people back face to face. And in a way, that's the challenge of Europe, isn't it? It's like a... 
it's not something we, it's so large that most of us can feel no part of and we need a way of thinking about, we have to be part of those global networks, but how can we make Europe more real um, and, and be some kind of lived, deep, participative experience in a way that it just isn't in the communities that I work with across Britain who are very much Brexit-supporting communities. Yes, these are the people that you mentioned in your, in your talk that perhaps we've had feelings, those who, who are pro-Remain, the, the, the question stands of, if, when you stand so much to lose, yes. how could you have voted? Well, that's what leave? people ask me, and that's what my piece is about mm. in the collection, really, because obviously all my work is in communities that are Brexit-supporting. I live and work in London. I live in a, a car, you know, I work in a car park in Peckham, you know, a very mixed community that is very much a Remain community. And people say, you know, but like, why, why are those people voting like mm. that? You know, mm. they're. They're the ones who are going to lose the jobs. They're the ones that are going to lose the grants. And I think that this goes, you know, again, to sort of things that Katka was talking about, which is that how do we, how now in this century are we going to understand those lived experiences? Mm. I understand why, if you live in a place where all good work has gone, mm. where there's this constant talk of these sort of big ideals and these big dreams, but it means nothing for mm. you or your family, that you would feel kind of pain and hurt and you would rebel against mm. that idea. But that's quite hard when we live in, you know, there are many Britons in the way you said there are many Europe's and that, that's quite hard, I think, to understand. Well, this is a very practical book, but one of, practical, um, one of the practical things that you do within it is recognise that stories, human stories, just as Kapka was saying, are really at the heart of, of, of have to be at the heart of the revolution to create social... Uh, cohesion. Well, we have to know each other again. I think, you know, because when you were talking about the sort of big moments yeah. at the end of the Second World War, and, you know, one of the reasons that we had these huge, incredible welfare states at the end of the Second World War was because the experience of war, which cut across class and nation, made us think differently about people. You know, there were all these narratives in the sort of 1940s before the war of, the, you know, the hapless poor and the kind of scrounders and all the things we see again today, and then living together, doing joint projects. So our challenge now is, because we don't want another war, although we could think that climate emergency could be the example, but how are we going to tell the different stories get to know each other, build those relationships, because only in that way can we begin to kind of build um, the systems we need that will support us. Well, but I think there's something fundamental we have to address at a larger scale, because there's a reason that the real economies have fallen for most people, the real income. There's a reason people feel marginalized and need uh, grants. Um, and that is the financial deregulation over the last few decades, that, and that it has become possible for um, these multinational companies to operate totally outside the economy all yeah. the rest of us depend upon. Yeah. So the welfare states uh, have been hollowed out because there's not the money to fund them that should be there. And these multinational companies, because they don't pay tax, because they set up everywhere where they can pay the very lowest to their workers, they can outcompete any local uh, company. So people lose their jobs who would work locally, then they work then for these multinational companies that underpay them. Um, and it's undermining every little local community. And that's nothing to do with the EU, because this is actually what the EU is fighting, or the commissioners in the EU are fighting against this. But that's that deregulation that happens over decades um, of the financial markets. It's no longer possible for anybody through normal physical work or just a normal job to move socially up the ladder. It's only possible if you 
do investments in this very abstract financial world. Yeah. And this is why I talk in my piece about how the it's when somehow the abstraction uh, or the invention of the abstract has more influence on our real world than what we do in the real world, then we're on the wrong track. And we're on the wrong track um, in the financial market and in technology. And it's not easy to stop, but I still believe if in Europe we stand together and work against that, we can regain control um, over these things. And that is actually giving back the control to the local communities so they won't a, feel I'm, that squeeze. I have to kind of put my hand up just because that's a, almost like a slogan now in Britain, this taking, having, taking back control of, of something local, something ours, which feels... No, but it's, ways, it's yeah. the other way around. It's not like you can't take control from the local area. Mm. You have to put international laws in place mm. in this thing. You have to... Go again, for example, the offshore tax. Why do you think so many super rich in this country have funded the Brexit uh, campaigns? Because they're the ones who have money offshore, and that's what the EU commissioners are trying to stop and to get transparency about. So that's why one has to look at, at the money flows and see where the interest in this world for the moment. Why do the super rich in America and elsewhere funds the right-wing nationalists in Europe? Mm. It's again because if we split up Europe, there'll be less control with all this offshore money. So it's undermining. It's unfortunate that what people think they vote for when they vote nationalist, no matter what, it's a patriotic wish exactly for more local control with something that's gone haywire. Mm. But it's the opposite that is happening. Because what actually undermines our economy will get even worse because we'll get even less control with those super uh, multinational companies uh, and the super rich. Novelist Leila Slamani represents France in the project and joined us at Hay Festival Digital this year to talk about Europe in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Honestly, I must say that um, I'm quite negative. I think that this crisis confirmed a lot of things that I was thinking about Europe, the lack of solidarity, the lack of leadership, the fact that when there is a problem, each country is going to retract on, on itself. The fact also that we invest so um, not, not enough in our public health system and in public services in, in general. And also the, the rise of xenophobia. You can see today in Italy, in France, in Spain, uh, everywhere, people are pointing the, the, the migrants or pointing people from abroad, saying this is because of them that we are facing that, especially people from Asia, but also migrants in the, in the camps in the north of, of France. So for me, it's just a confirmation of what I was thinking before. Um, a continent where it's there is less and less solidarity and where we are so much afraid of people coming from abroad. I'm going to move on to ask um, to ask you, Leila, a, a particular question. Thinking about your piece, it, um, in your piece for Europa 28, you hone in on the Mediterranean, um, on the sea, and what you you remind us Homer called the liquid road but that actually we are not, as Europeans, treating very much like a liquid road in our, in our thinking. And part of what you talk about is, is our inability to define ourselves with and including the global south, that which is beyond the Mediterranean. Um, this obviously becomes very um, 
topical and painful uh, if you if you make the, the very short inductive leap to, to, to the refugee crisis and to those people who are literally crossing the Mediterranean for better lives. And it struck me to think that last year, for the first time since 2015, the asylum applications in Europe rose again. The crisis has, you know, the, the refugee crisis hasn't gone anywhere. But I wondered if you think there have been new developments in a kind of, um, you know, almost supranational identity crisis in Europe uh, in response to the refugee crisis and our failures. You know, when I began to write this this piece, I remembered my childhood. I was born and raised in, in Morocco. And uh, in the 80s, I remember that my father said to me, he was Moroccan and I'm Moroccan too, he said to me, you know, maybe one day Morocco will be a part of Europe. And there was this idea, it was the idea of the king of Morocco to build a bridge between Morocco and Spain. Can you really imagine today someone saying we're going to build a bridge between Morocco and Spain? Can you imagine today that Turkey could be a real candidate for European Union? So for me, it's very sad because this is all the dreams of my childhood that I know that will never be accomplished in, uh, during my lifetime. And um, no, I think it's worse and worse if you look at Andalusia today. Uh, today, the, there is a rise of 2,000% of people coming in Andalusia and the south of, of Spain, and 60% of them are less than 15 years old. They are children, just little children. You have also a rise of people who are buried in uh, Lampedusa, in Lesbos, in Spain without names. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they come from. They are just bodies. They arrive on the, our borders and we put them in graves without name. Could you imagine that we put people, white people in graves without name, without even searching who they are? So for me, that's a real betrayal of what Europe is. You know, as a Moroccan, as a little girl, a Moroccan little girl, for me, Europe was the lighthouse of the world. It was not a question of ethnicity. It was not a question of geography. It was a question of values. It was a place where I could be a free woman. It was a place where I could have free speech, where I could fight for so many things. And I have the feeling that it betrayed me, it betrayed my the dream I had when I was a when I was a child because it's not that anymore for so many people and all the people in the south who look at Europe and look up at Europe and expect so much from from this European Union they are betrayed when they are just you know we have slavery in the border of Union slavery in Libya slavery in Algeria in Morocco just in front of our continent so for me it's really, really the, the biggest tragedy of, of our continent today. And it's not just a tragedy, is it? You know, it's, it's an outrage. Um, how, you know, you, I can, you can hear in your voice, and if you read anything that Leila writes, any of your nonfiction, there's a rage there. Um, and I think a lot of it, a lot of us feel it. Um, but also, a, there's a lot of apathy. So you marked out the difference between how people see Europeanness from the outside looking in. Are we just too apathetic? Have, have, the, have we just become apathetic because the ideals came good? 
because in a way we took advantage and we just we just got used to the freedoms that we enjoy how can we engage people once more to live up to those ideals and ignore the divide you know there because there are divisive discourses that are precisely harnessing uh harnessing that apathy you know, i think that maybe the question also of pride i am proud to be to be French and to be here, and I am proud of these values I'm living with: free freedom of speech, the right to for abortion, and all that. We should be proud of having this, and we should want to share it. But in a certain way, we have this complex. And I speak more for French people. French people, they have this complex that you can't be proud of this kind of values because it would be a sort of neo-colonial. Thing. So you shouldn't say to other people, and especially in Maghreb, that you are proud of uh, secularism or right of abortion, because there is this idea of cultural relativism. You know, everyone should do as he wants, but no, there are, I believe in universality and what is the core of Europe? The idea that some values can be universal. It's not a question of the color of your skin, of your religion, or the fact that you are white or black or woman or man. Some values are universal. They go for everyone. And we should be brave enough to fight for that. You know, I think that people say to me, oh, you know, veil or uh, rape, it's cultural. No, it's not cultural. Crime is not a culture. Rape is not a culture. This is not a culture and it will never be. And so we should fight for what we believe in and we should be proud of fighting for that and not feeling ashamed because people are looking at us, telling us that we are neo-colonial, I don't know what. No, I am proud of that, and I believe in universalism of, of values. Turkish writer Elif Shafak has been a great champion of the Europa 28 project, saying, inspiring, essential, honest, and deeply humane, this brilliant collection takes readers on a brave journey into our beloved continent, Europe, daring to tell the stories beyond its centres of power and privilege. She joined us at Hay Festival Digital earlier this year to share her own vision for the future. And there is no doubt that we're living in very strange times, scary times. In many ways, it feels as if we're going through a dark tunnel and we don't quite know when or how it's going to come to an end. And we don't know whether it might happen again, another pandemic. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. There's lots of unknowns. And suddenly it's almost as if nothing feels solid, nothing feels certain anymore. Even the ground beneath our feet doesn't feel solid. And at a time like this, it's very normal, it is very human to feel anxious. It's almost like an existential angst. We're living in an age in which there are lots of negative emotions, such as fear, such as anger, such as resentment, or, of course, apprehension. And these negative emotions do guide and misguide our politics, and they're also exploited by politics. So I think it's incredibly important that we're able to recognize how negative emotions have become an important part of our lives. And to a certain extent, this is very normal, because if you're really following what's happening in the world today, you will feel worried. You will feel anger, you know. I think if, you don't, if you're not feeling these things, maybe you're not following what's happening. But I also know, as an anxious person myself, 
that with all these negative emotions, we can't have a, a motivating force. Anger cannot be a motivating force or fear cannot be a motivating force. So in other words, maybe one of our biggest challenges is, is going to be, what do we do with all these negative emotions and how do we transfer them into something much more positive and into something much more constructive? I find that question important. And we have been told that the pandemic we're experiencing around the world, East and West, North and South, was a big equalizer. And it does look like that at the first glance because the virus affects everyone, regardless of race and religion and ethnicity and class and gender. And yet at the same time, when we scratch the surface and when we take a closer look, it is also very clear that some people are affected much more severely, badly than others. It is also very clear that the pandemic has revealed the existing inequalities and fractures in our social and political systems. And those inequalities matter enormously. Even in advanced democracies, such as the UK, we do know that even within the same city, people who live in more uh, affluent parts of the, of the city, let's say, are less affected or less likely to contract the virus and, and to die from the virus when compared to people who are living in poorer neighborhoods of the same city. So that means that people who are already disempowered and disadvantaged are the ones that are being hit most severely by the virus today. I think we have entered an age in which inequality cannot be a footnote. It cannot be a side issue. It really has to be at the center of all of our debates all of our struggles from now on, we have to bridge these gaps. We have to pay attention to the gaps that are keeping us apart as human beings. We also know that it's incredibly important that we keep communicating. It's incredibly important that we understand the value of coexistence, diversity, human rights, women's rights. I say this as a writer who comes from a country that has been going backwards, first gradually, but then with a bewildering speed. Countries like Turkey have shown us that history doesn't always necessarily go forward. And in fact, sometimes it draws circles, you know, and sometimes it goes backwards. And sometimes generations can make the same mistakes that their grandparents had made earlier. Turkey also shows us, and countries like Turkey, because Turkey is not the only one, on that long list of countries that have been sliding backwards, it also shows us that if it is true that societies can tumble into ultranationalism, religious fundamentalism, um, and, and populist authoritarianism, I think we women need to be much more concerned. We need to be more worried and alert. Why am I saying this? It's because when ultranationalism increases, when authoritarianism increases, when religious fundamentalism increases, in a nutshell, when societies become more and more enclosed and isolated, I think the first rights that will be curbed will be women's rights and also minority rights. So I do believe that we're living in an age in which it's incredibly important for us to have global solidarity 
and global sisterhood. As uh, a writer, I've heard from time to time, especially when I used to live in Istanbul, I've heard from people coming from the Western world saying to me that it was very understandable for me to be a feminist because after all, I lived in a very patriarchal country. But that statement always made me pause because I think for a long time, people have thought that some parts of the world were turbulent places and you needed human rights and freedom of speech and women's rights in those places. But the Western world in general was regarded as solid and stable, as if it was beyond those concerns. And what has changed, especially after the year 2016, but more and more now, is that perception, that dualistic view of the world. Because now we know that there's no such thing as solid lands versus liquid lands. And now we know that, as the late Zygmunt Bauman used to tell us, actually we're all living in liquid times. So the pandemic has occurred at a time in which we were already feeling um, that, that things were shifting, but now, of course, it has revealed the existing inequalities and fractures. And maybe, maybe, in the long run, we should therefore see this as a turning point, as a crossroads. You know, when people say, when are we going back to the way things were? When are we going back to the normal? And I want to be able to to examine that question, because was it really normal, the lives we were living prior to the pandemic? I don't think so, you know? I don't think so. And I would, I personally do not want to go back to the way things were before. I think it would be an incredible pity if we try to repeat the existing structures. Instead, we need to see the pandemic as a crossroads. We have two choices in front of us. Are we going to increase nationalism, tribalism, more isolationism? Is our primary instinct going to be, I want to protect people who are like me? Is sameness our, is going to be our primary um, emphasis? Or are we going to collaborate and co-op cooperate more beyond borders, national and ethnic and religious borders? So in other words, I do believe that we need to reform our systems. We need to renew our, our habits, our daily habits, our very connection with the environment. Um, we need to mend these inequalities that are affecting all of us, in fact, in the long run. And we need to understand that whether it's the pandemic or the climate crisis or the dark side of digital technologies, we are facing major global challenges today so the answer to those global challenges cannot be more nationalism. The answer to those global challenges cannot be more uh, tribalism. I think we need an internationalist spirit right now. I'm not talking about continuing the existing inequalities of globalism. Let's leave that aside, but create a new system in which we can be both patriotic you know, we can have love and emotional connection to the cultures where we come from, the lands where we come from, but at the same time, keep the spirit of humanism alive and internationalism alive. That is possible. And in a nutshell, I can only tell you, sometimes people ask me whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist, and I always jokingly say I'm, I'm Turkish, you know, I can't by nature be an optimist. 
um, because if you've opened a map of Europe and if you follow, if you trace with your finger the Danube River, the Blue Danube, uh, as you move from Germany towards the Black Sea, I think the level of optimism drops. So by the time you reach Romania and Bulgaria um, or Turkey, for instance, we're not very optimistic cultures. Maybe we have reasons not to be. But I think we need a healthy dose of both pessimism and optimism in this age. Because too much pessimism, it just pulls us down. And yet an optimism that is very certain also maybe makes us unaware of what's happening. And maybe in the long run, it makes us a little bit arrogant as well. So a healthy dose of pessimism and a healthy dose of optimism is my answer. And the Italian thinker, political thinker, Gramsci, used to talk about this. He used to talk about the pessimism of the intellect, but the optimism of the will, the optimism of the heart. And I think this is the age in which we're going to need both the pessimism of the mind and the optimism of the heart that will come from our fellow human beings and from keeping these connections alive. Thanks for listening. And that's it for Series 2 of the Hay Festival podcast. You can hear the full events and 8,000 more on the Hay Player over on our website. The podcast is brought to you by our fabulous friends at Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and Europa 28 runs from the 6th to the 9th of October. And you can find out more at hayfestival.org forward slash Europa 28. We'll be back again soon. Until then, happy listening.